0: In the name of the Trinity To us, In the name of the Father and the Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today is the last day of being mean. Um, but it's important for us to reflect upon our role because we tend to look at things as though they're happening far away. So we know what we're carrying with us to the cross on Friday. And as the rest of the week, as we see the plot is starting to thicken now, the plotting and the planning of the temple is going on. Um, and so God willing, from tomorrow on, we'll start meditating on what's actually going on. Um and who is involved and and what they're thinking and to understand it better. So again, let's just zoom out first and look at the big picture. We see right now the beginnings of the rejection of the temple. For Example, the third hour of the morning. um, We see that the readings are pointing us that the temple is no longer going to be the place of worship. We're not told why yet. Um, We'll see as the week progresses, it's because of the new covenant, the rejection of the law, and the establishing of the one and only sacrifice. And so the day of the Lord is near, is still being shouted every single hour, and it will be for the whole week. And we're starting also to see the beginnings of the trial of our Lord. If we zoom in into what's going on with our Lord specifically, there's a lot of argumentation um, that we'll move into more starting tomorrow. and the, the, the Jews in the readings are starting to want to know. They're asking the question of, who are you? What are you claiming? And they will drill him like crazy, and they will go crazy. And we're starting to see readings that are telling us that the Messiah is not a fluke. He's prophesied of from the beginning. He's the one who spoke to Moses. He's the ancient of days seen by Daniel. These are the readings that we looked at today. Um, it's really revealing that in the big picture, the Lord was always the solution, because the church is dealing with a claim that the Lord is making. If he is who he's claiming to be, then does this come as a surprise to Israel or not? And so that's why the church is also providing these readings to say, this is really him. And we read this morning the story of the flood. And the flood shows one of the darkest times in human history. That Perhaps we're living in something similar today, but We're told specifically that what what drove our Lord to deal with the situation is actually specifically that violence had taken over. And think about how messed up it is that we, as humans, can feel so strongly about something or ourselves that we actually can get up and physically damage a living being. Just pause and, and think about that. Think, think what it would mean if, if someone were to get up angrily and, and just kill your puppy or mutilate your puppy. I'm sorry for the, the image. But what kind of person is that when you have that in your mind? Now, think about doing that to another human being. And that's what was going on at the time of the flood. The disease of sin had taken over and humanity was going crazy and humanity was going to die from this disease, it was already dying. And so actually God saved humanity with the flood. The covenant was originally with all of humanity. Everyone is part of God's people, but the people had rejected. And so we're seeing again in the readings that God is making this covenant with Israel. We're gonna go into the specifics of that covenant on Covenant Thursday but we're reminded of it in the first hour. But to zoom in a little bit on the reflective today before going to the historical in the next few days and and, and meditating on the events themselves, perhaps just to return for one last time to this concept of us as the spouse of the Lord. If you're a Christian, you're you're Jesus' spouse. You're the Lord Jesus' spouse. That's that's the premise. So as we've talked about at length the last two nights is we've been unfaithful as a spouse. There is a covenant that the Jews made. And you also made a covenant in your baptism that we will be your people and you will be our God. And one might ask, why is it a covenant? Because God could have just made us bow down and, and spared us this whole drama. And it's very simple because as a spouse, he wants you to choose him. He wants you to choose him or it's not a loving marriage. It would be a functional marriage, not a, not a loving marriage. A great marriage is both loving and functional. Put it on God, he's, he's a romantic. Like the Israel's, Israelites were warned, warned of this morning in the third hour, we often bounce after our rescue. We walk away from where we were rescued, and not only couldn't care less, but sometimes we'll, we'll take credit for the rescue. And I was thinking about this morning, and I, and I was thinking about when I did that. Um, when I went away to the monastery, I left instructions for my dad on how to manage and distribute, quote-unquote, my money. And it took me two or three years after doing that to my dad and I ended up leaving the monastery for the, the brotherhood. And and realized that it was my dad who had paid my debts. It was my dad who paid my tuition. It was my dad who bought me a car. And I thought I was financially brilliant. And I thought that I had the right to distribute, quote unquote, my wealth. It wasn't me, right? We, we, we do this on so many levels where, we, where we, we take pleasure and we take pride in something as though we've done something and we didn't. So we, we are not only unfaithful, but we'll take credit. But God is faithful, right? We read about his rescuing us from Egypt in the first hour of the morning. Right? We read about him fighting our wars. We see that he liberated us from the captivities, from captivity. And as we all know, he gives us his life. So there's no question about God's faithfulness. So perhaps we can just maybe delve a little deeper into how can we be faithful through the readings that we read today. What is, what is the instruction from the readings today on how we can be faithful? The Book of Wis- books of wisdom in particular today give us a lot on this. Do not be rash with your tongue. Don't be slow or neglectful in your works. Don't be like a lion in your house or frantic with your servants. Do not let your hand be stretched out to receive and withdrawn when you should repay. Don't say you're self-sufficient. Don't follow your own strength. So you might ask, how how is this being faithful? The advice is saying, get a grip on yourself. You won't be faithful if you say whatever you want and do whatever you want. When you walk, as Solomon says, in your heart's desire. Or Sirach, sorry. Don't put your eyes, he says, on getting stuff on the one hand or saying... I can take care of whatever I need on the other. you're, You're even claiming two contradictory things at the same time. Don't try and take things from others while never being willing to give to them. And so this teaches that faithfulness is coming when you remove the object or subject of your thought and action from yourself to the other that's what the advice is saying this is how this is why it makes you more faithful because your relationship becomes not about what you receive as much as what you are desiring to offer and we'll see how beautiful god is in this because r- really we're offering god his own his own stuff right that's why we say in liturgy we offer unto these things from what is yours because it's it's not ours but he's saying okay yeah that's really nice of you give Give to others from what you received. And the wisdom literature tells us, don't let the desire of beauty conquer you. Don't be caught by your eyes. Don't be captivated by her eyelashes. For the value of a prostitute is as much as of one loaf of bread, and a woman hunts for the precious souls of men. Can anyone put fire in his lap and not burn his clothes? Or can anyone walk on coals of fire and not burn his feet? This is from the book of Proverbs that we read in the 11th hour this morning. He's saying, Be real. Be real, guys. Don't test your faithfulness by flirting with disaster. If you want to be faithful, don't test your limits. Don't see how long you can get away with something. The day of the Lord is coming. And if you're burnt, you're burnt. Moves on to say, do work. My son, if you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for hardship. Be willing to be poor. Be willing to be humiliated so that your relationship comes out like pure gold proven by fire. You know, it's funny because people believe in this concept for a week or two, right? Think of people who Someone said, oh, you should never marry that person. And so they go out of their way to make it work no matter what. Because they want to prove their love. Right? If you're obsessed with someone and they say, well, I don't know if I can, I can reciprocate this relationship because you lack this or this or this or this. Most people will be like, I'll prove to them that I can. Right? They'll, they'll, they'll want to they'll wanna show their faithfulness by saying, no, anything you think I can do, I will do. But we don't do it to our spouse. Right? Be willing to be poor. Be willing to be poor together. Be willing to be humiliated. So your relationship comes out like pure gold proven by fire. It's the work that shows the nature of your relationship with God. It's the work that shows your faithfulness. If you quit your job every time they ask you to do something that went beyond your status quo, beyond your comfort level, beyond your comfort of how they evaluate you or treasure you or value you, you'd you'd either never hold a job or you'd never get good at your job because you never, ever develop the skill. You just talk about it. If you don't do work, you are just talking. I remember one time venting to my one of my spiritual fathers and being a little uh, self-pitying because I was insulted by somebody that I really value in the service. And I genuinely thought that he was going to say to me, yeah, man, it's rough, right? Sometimes people are jerks. Um, sometimes people, I thought he was going to say something like, yeah, yeah, I I am going to show you solidarity. And he just looked at me and said, it's, it's good for us to suffer. It's good for us to suffer. And on reflection, he's right. I'm trying to use examples from my life where I was making tons of mistakes because I make mostly those. When I was a novice in the monastery, and I know I've told the story tons of times, but I remember judging everyone in the monastery judging everyone in the monastery, thinking that I love God. I'm going to be a real monk. These people over here, they're horrible. They don't act like Christians. They don't do this. They don't do that. They treat me like this. They treat each other like this. And I had this crazy long list until it occurred to me that I wasn't doing my work. I wasn't showing my faithfulness to God in loving my neighbor. I was judging every single one of them and taking God's role. And when the work was done of saying, how can I serve my brethren and my fathers? Only then was God able to show me, you are not worthy of your brethren or your fathers. The love they have for me is actually much deeper than the love that you claim to have for me. And when one does this work, the same people that I would have been quick to speak negatively about today, if anyone speaks negatively about them, I feel full of zeal to knock them out. Work changes us. Any precious metal is purified of other materials. So the quality of the material is shown, right? This is, this is the dross that was spoken about in, in one of the hours today. The, you're a mixed metal, that you're, you're not pure, And the only way to pull out your purity is to put you as an element through fire, and that can hurt. That's the work that's necessary. Noah did work. We read about the ark, the flood this morning. Who built the ark? Noah did. Um, And he did it. He did it while being ridiculed. Can you imagine? Because, I mean, we feel sorry for ourselves. The gospel is hard. People are going to say this. People think we're Islamophobes, homophobes, bigots, whatever. Like, there's all these names for us. Imagine imagine Noah building a gigantic ark on dry land with no sign of a storm. No sign of a storm that's going to flood the earth. Telling people, oh, I'm building it because God is going to destroy the earth. What herald of great news was that? And the people probably thought he was actually crazy. But he did it. He did the work. He did the work that probably made no sense to him. He was faithful. Okay, Doing the work is your faithfulness. He probably actually even had doubts about it. He probably had doubts about it. Is this really going to happen? Because it's not like God said, here, I'm going to do it. And then the next day animals came lining up because he finished the ark in a day. No, this this was a really long project. Because faithfulness and faith are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Faith grows as a consequence of our faithfulness. But they're not the same thing. Faithfulness is an active process. He probably wondered if it would really happen. He probably wondered actually if his God was even good. He probably wished that others he bought the wood from, for example, wouldn't die. Faithfulness requires work. Do the work, the readings tell us today, do the work even when he appears to be gone. The kingdom is like a man leaving for another country and distributed talents. It's like the ten virgins. He gave so many parables this evening, what the kingdom of heaven is like. In all of them, the people are away from the bridegroom the wedding feast that people didn't come to. You have to be faithful even while waiting. Are you faithful to your spouse only when he or she is physically in front of you? No. You're your spouse's spouse all the time. You're faithful to your spouse even when your spouse is away on business, when your spouse is at home or your spouse is at his or her work. You remain faithful. It's the same with God. Are you faithful to Christ only on Sundays and feast days when you feel God? To do the work is to wear the garment that lets you into the feast. It's saying, I have been committed, I have been devoted to coming to this feast. Be authentic. The words from this morning always get me all year long. When, when God says, I hate, I reject your feasts. I will not smell your meat offerings at your assemblies. Therefore, if you should bring me your whole burnt sacrifices and meat offerings, I will not accept them. Remove the sound of your songs from me, and I will not listen to the music of your instruments. Have you offered victims and sacrifices to me 40 years in the wilderness? Yeah, you did. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan. These were pagan gods. He's saying, So you come to me into church and you sing me nice songs and you hold hands and act like you're all happy and you celebrate your Eucharist and you have your holy Paschas and everybody's mourning and sad and acting like they care about me. In the meantime, who are the gods you have up on your walls in your house? What god do you worship in your home? Is it money? Is it prestige? Is it your service? Who's your God? God hates lip service because he hates lies. Not because he's looking for praise. No. He hates lies. Because He is truth. Truth cannot dwell with lies. It's impossible. So you can pretend to be faithful, but the readings are, are saying that God is asking you to really be faithful. And is that a mean ask? Like, is it mean... Or horrendous or horrific for a spouse to say to his spouse, Could you please love me back? Cause we're married? Like that that's that's what I'm I'm asking. I'm just asking you, please don't don't go sleep with other people. Is that a horrible ask? This is what he's asking us. Please be faithful, be authentic. Actually like me, don't pretend to like me. Don't do me lip service. Right? Imagine, just think of I'm sure we've all had a situation like this where we know someone's just telling us things they think we want to hear, right? Where you can see in their face, they think something else and they're like, oh, well, that's terrible. And you know, they're itching to tell you off or tell you why they think that it's actually your fault or a whole bunch of other situations where they're sorry, but they're not really sorry. And you, 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 you're unhappy, even though they said words that are helpful or nice or kind or comforting or appropriate because you saw that they didn't mean it. Desire truth. Okay, this is, this is if, again, if we wanna be faithful. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. This is from the readings of this morning. My people are like a priest who is contradicted. Therefore, they will be weak by day and the prophet will be weak with you. I have compared your mother to night. My people have become like those who have no knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. What does that have to do with faithfulness? How do you claim to be in a relationship with someone about whom you know nothing? Imagine if your marriage is just a cohabitation and you don't interact at all. You wouldn't know the first thing about your spouse, what he or she likes to eat, drink, how each thinks. The less you know about one another, the weaker the relationship. Your bonds are weak and you you won't know how to interact. You need to get to know your lover. You need to have this knowledge. So part of the knowing the truth is you need to know something about the person with whom you are in a relationship. How can you be good friends with someone and know nothing about them? Right? Do you even know when their birthday is? Do you know what to get them? Do you know when you're offering them a food or an idea of what to even do just to chill? What it would be. If you don't know them, you won't know any of those answers. So part of it is about this truth about the person relationship. But another part is about not speaking against the truth in the readings. So, says, do not speak against the truth, but be ashamed of your ignorance. Don't be ashamed to confess your sins and don't exercise force against the flow of a river. Don't make yourself subject to a foolish man or accept the person of a ruler. Fight to the death for truth and the Lord will fight for you because the Lord is truth. It's from Sirach. So if you want to be faithful, to put this in a different way, you have to have certain principles, like we said, that are true to govern your relationship. That's where truth comes in. The minute you compromise it, it means you don't believe it or that you're not faithful to it, okay? So what I'm trying to say is in a relationship, you're operating under some things that you hold to be norms, things that you hold to be true. And only because you believe those things to be true, do you behave the way you do or you don't do certain things. For example, if you know that typically when you lie to someone, it upsets them. You might consider not lying to them because you have this principle that you believe in that lying affects people. If you don't, you could lie away and there's no, no issue. Okay. So we believe stuff. Okay. That's why we're told be ashamed of your ignorance because you should want to know not to boast in it. Some people laugh and say, Oh, I can never do math to save my life. Why is that a good thing? Like, why is that praiseworthy? Why is that funny? Why is it good to be ignorant about how to do math? I'm not trying not to make like a big deal out of, of math, but I'm using it to, to make the point, right? Is that, why has that become a source of boasting? This is what the, the scripture is saying. Don't do that. Don't, don't be proud that you're dumb. Sorry, right? And so that's secularly an example but religiously, this is those of us who say, oh, don't worry. You know what? I'm not super religious. You're safe around me. Or I don't, I don't know any of that theology stuff. Why are you rejoicing in that? I'm not saying it needs to be like no dogma and recite it. But my point is, why would that be a source of boasting? Is that a reason for boasting? It's like saying that you deny the need for faithfulness in marriage. It would be like telling someone, don't worry. I'm not really sure how I feel about this whole fidelity thing. You're ignorant about the need for fidelity and then boasting it. You don't know why you should be faithful. And then showing it off as though the not knowing were a good thing. So this advice is saying, be ashamed of your ignorance. Don't show it off. And he's also saying... Be truthful about yourself. How rare is it to be truthful about ourselves? He says, be very quick, Jesus, son of Sirach, be quick to confess your faults. It is so liberating. It's liberating to be able to say, I'm so sorry. I actually just did that because of my ego. I'm just saying it out loud. It's liberating. I know I overtell this story. My brother won. So I'm obsessed with electronics. It's one of my weaknesses. And I always want the latest gadget. I'm guilty. Okay. And before, um, before I went to the monastery, I just bought whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, but I feel guilty about it because I knew that I shouldn't, especially if I wanted to be monastic, I'm not supposed to be like that, but I am. So, I would always give a reason for why I need to get the thing I'm going to get to feel justified. And so I'd be like, I'm going to buy this because this will actually make me get rid of this other thing and I will be more productive and I'll serve better. And I have all these reasons. So after I joined the St. Paul Brotherhood, I was with my brother at Best Buy and I saw a gadget that I liked. And I was like, you know, George, I think I need to get this because if I get it, I can get rid of my um, tablet and then instead of having two separate devices, I'm going to have one device. And my brother looked at me and he goes, honestly, you always do this. In the end, you buy whatever you want to buy and you don't get rid of the other stuff because you just want it. And I looked at him and usually I like to fight with my brother. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm vain. I just want it. That's all there is to it. And then that confession was so liberating because I didn't have to hide behind it. It was true. I just want it, right? And so then the real question became a question of truth. Should I want it? Why do I want it? Is it wrong to get stuff? Maybe it's not wrong to have it, but maybe there needs to be um, some moderation in how frequently I buy, not buying the first one that comes out, et cetera. I mean, that's its own discussion but it's liberating to be able to say your fault because you no longer need to hide behind it. You no longer need to to do it. If somebody thinks you're arrogant, well ask yourself, are you arrogant? Then you're arrogant, it's true. And, And to be faithful requires that we have that knowledge because when you know it about yourself, you know how to fight for your relationship where you can say, I know about me that I'm easily tempted that's the truth about me. I need to stay away from such and such situations because me, I know me, I'll fall. Maybe there are others who can go there and not fall, but that's not me, I'm the guy who falls. And so your your faithfulness grows because of the truth that you were willing to confess out loud. It is so redeeming. Truth, as far as I can see, is synonymous with humility. So many readings about the humbling of the pride of Judah and Israel, but to not know yourself, this is why I believe it's the same thing. To not know yourself is to be lying about yourself. It's to pretend to be greater than you are or to be something that you're not. Truth necessitates humility. Whatever it is that you're lying about about yourself, that's your pride. It's like the Jews of the ninth hour gospel that the Lord rebukes, claiming that they would never make the same mistake as their ancestors. They were standing in front of him and, and, and the Lord is saying, you talk like you wouldn't have killed the prophets. And in his head, it's like, you're, <laughs> you're about to kill God. You're not better than them. Then he says something that I think some of us are difficult, have difficulty with in the readings, saying, don't mix with lies. Cursing and lying, murder and theft and adultery are poured out on the land and they mix blood with blood. Why are these a big deal? Lying, cursing, murder and theft. What do these have to do with faithfulness? All of these are possessive. They're the opposite of love. All of these are lies. Any excessive speech is a decoration. It's concealing something. This is against our nature. And when we turn from our nature, we turn from God. Because we're made according to his nature. I was trying to think of an analogy to explain this. I'm sorry, it's not a good one, but it's like injecting something that's water soluble into a fatty container and then putting that into a cup of water. Without the fatty container, that original thing would have dissolved in the water because it's like substance, this is the relationship. But our decorating it in this package ruined the relationship. We're no longer able to interact. The lies, they sicken you and they kill you. St. Shinuti said in the homily earlier, many are those whose flesh became weakened through the multitude of their adulteries. Their hearts will also be weakened. Think about it. How many of you have been addicted to a particular thing that you would consider a sin? Did it not take you over? Did it not affect your relationships with other people? If you were addicted to something, did not your heart and mind go to it even when your body couldn't? Didn't people around you ask you if everything was okay? I know that that's happened for me all the time. We're affected by what we do, and it affects in turn our relationships. So Saint John Chrysostom, typical fashion, asks us to show God some respect. Right? That he says, you know, it's it's. He goes, it's 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 mind blowing to me that. If I suggest to you that you're doing something wrong, you get so mad at me, but you're totally fine with other people abusing you and taking advantage of you and killing you. Um, And so he says, how do you come and partake of the Eucharist if you're not faithful to God? And that's a question that we should ask ourselves. On what basis do I think that I can approach Eucharist when I abuse the host that I'm about to receive. It's something that we should take, I think, in our generation a little more seriously. Forgive this allegory, but it's asking yourself, if I've gone to sleep with another, how do I have the boldness to get into bed with my spouse at night? That's the question we should ask. And so he says, the readings say to us, give the Lord your heart. What does God say has upset him the ninth hour? He says they have divided hearts. They have divided lovers. They love me and they love someone else. And I, 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 I'm not, as a husband, I, I, I struggle with this. Finally, for faithfulness, let God clean you part of our faithfulness is letting him do his work for the young men will hunger and the young will be weary and the chosen men will be powerless but those who wait for god will renew their strength they will mount up with wings like eagles they will run and not be weary they will walk and not hunger the lord wants to fix you part of your faithfulness is letting your spouse do his job we really don't like roles anymore our generation is when I saying, "Oh, I can do anything. There's no such thing as boy or girl, man or woman, boss, employee, prime minister, and steward You know everybody's the same, and they confuse sameness for not and and, and for equality. We're not the same, we're equal, but we're not the same. And part of the spouse's role is for him to perfect you. The cleaning can hurt which he warns us in the first hour of the evening with the dross of it purifying through fire, but it makes us a real relationship. When are we faithful to? To the very end, to the day of the Lord. That's why it keeps coming back up. So I just want to meditate. I'm sorry for how long this is taking. I really am almost done actually. Um, but I was going to originally talk about this first. and No, I, this because it's last of why be faithful to him because I'm worried that everything that I have said sounds all doom and gloom first of all because he is faithful we've talked about that okay oh you who brings glad tidings to Zion lift, lift up your voice with strength and, and, and say to the cities of, of Judah behold your God the Lord is coming with strength his arms with authority Th- this is God's reaction to our evil he's saying Isaiah Go tell them to go party. Tell them to hit up the music and to rejoice. I am coming. My work is before me. See, he works. He's not asking me to work. He works. My work is before me, and I am going to tend my flock like a shepherd. I'm going to gather my lambs. I am going to comfort those who are with young. That is what I'm doing. Look how faithful he is. Some of you might be asking, why should I bother? Well, look at at him. Right. Look at, look at how faithful he is. Look at the work he's doing. He's looking past his actual, unlike ours, justified doubts about us. He's saying, even though it's really me who should be comforted by a desertion of me, yet I, I'm going to comfort you. Your exile will end. I'll save you in spite of you. I'll save you while you still hate me. I'm not going to compromise my faithfulness to the covenant and thus to you for a single moment. He's that mom at the funeral or the family member at the funeral that's comforting the mourners. The mourners are coming to mourn for the family and then the family is saying words of comfort instead. This is is what our God is doing. We should be faithful to him because he's the truth. This is the basic premise, right? All through the wisdom readings, the Gospel of John readings, especially in particular. Um, many readings are from the Gospel of John during Holy Week in and, and, and which God refers to himself as light or truth. In the first hour, our Lord says, when I'm lifted up, you'll know that I am he. I am the I am. And we will respond to him on Holy and Great Friday, with a hymn pointing right back at him saying, this is he. We're going to say it right back. I'm not going to get into how he's the truth right now, but going to assume that you're all believers, and there's a premise you believe that he's who he says he is, which is God. If he's God, then he has to be true. Otherwise, he can't be a fact. He'd be fiction. If he's God, actually then he must be true because otherwise he's fiction. I'm stating the obvious and yet it's an important thought to actually interact with. Truth and light are so powerful. Truth exposes every weakness as does light. Without light you can't see and without truth you can't see. Without the light of truth, you don't know how to navigate a single thing in life. Let me make this... Let me dumb it down. How can you live without the assumption that certain things have to be true? I'm going to sound bizarre for a second. Bear with me. You have a relationship with your parents because you believe it's a fact that they're your parents. You believe you're going to get paid if you go to work. You believe people will not run red lights because there's a law about not going through them. You believe your friends care for you because you believe there's such thing as friendship. I could go on and on. But my point is that you could never predict anything or have any kind of security about anything if nothing true exists. If nothing true exists, then Everything would be chaos and random and never predictable. You could never say, I expect this to happen because it is not true. It's all random. You need truth, capital T, to make sense of life because truth happens to be life. And truth became flesh. The truth, as we said on Sunday night, turned on the light so that you could make sense of the world instead of crawling around in darkness. You're from below. As the Lord said, without truth, he is from above. We should be faithful to him because he suffers for us innocently, like Job. And he fights for us. His suffering is his fighting for us. He says, the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold in the day when the Lord heals the wound of his people, and he will heal the pain of your wound. See, the name of the Lord comes after a long time, a burning wrath, the word of his lips is with glory. A word full of anger and the anger of his wrath will devour like fire and his breath like rushing water in the valley will reach up to the neck and be divided to confound the nations in their vain errors and error will pursue them and overtaking them. Who is he fighting? Your captor. Who is he liberating? You. Tell me who wouldn't want a spouse that rescues them? who fights for them, who vindicates them, who defends them even when they're guilty. How good is our God? He's not a show-off, right? In the first hour of Psalm, he says, I was peaceful with those who hate peace. When I speak to them, they fought against me without a cause. And I had never considered that. God, when he came incarnate, he didn't have to be nice to us. God could have, in his incarnation, come and said, you're all dumb. You're all horrible. You have left me. Everything about you has become filthy. You don't resemble anything of how I made you. But he came peacefully. He came, he came with the message of peace to earth and goodwill among men. And yet they fight him without a cause. Who, who doesn't love a character like that? Who doesn't love somebody? Like that one of the readings that some books have um, for the day that's not in in most is the reading that we'll read again on great friday about um, elijah after the earthquake was a fire that he's waiting for the voice of the lord and the lord is not in the fire and after the fire there's the different things he heard was the sound of a gentle breeze and the lord was there he's he's cute forgive me i'm not I'm not demeaning God or trivializing him. I'm not big on the cuteness thing, but I mean, I know he's also great and terrifying, but what I mean is that God as a, as a sweet lover is almost saying, I'm playing the role of, of man, right? Masculinity when I assert and proclaim, but really I'm gentle. I don't, I don't have a desire to make a big demonstration of me being God. Because if I did, it would mean that I'm needing to decorate. But I'm not decorating. I'm, I am. This is who I am. I'll speak quietly. I don't need to impress upon you that I'm God. In fact, all the places where he's being allowed in all these readings are him saying, couldn't I, couldn't I show my strength here? Shouldn't I actually show my strength here? I'm going to. I'm going to. And then he'll every single one come back like, ah, no. I will save you. I must save you. So many of today's readings were that he's not looking to flex. Because he is romantic. To whom have you compared the Lord? Or with what likeness have you compared him? Has an artisan made an image or the goldsmith after casting gold it and made it a likeness of him? Forgive me, this is like the cheating spouse and, 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 and God is taking the role of man and saying, what, what do you see in that guy anyway? Right? He's, he's pleading with his, his bride. He's, 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 he's taking on the role fully because he's not faking. He, he really isn't. Look at his humility in wanting to woo us. Our God, if you want to be vain and think after the flesh, well, you know what? Your God, he's rich. And he wants to spoil you and everyone. Although she is but one, she can do all things. And while remaining in herself, she needs nothing else. Wisdom, this is speaking of the Logos. She renews all things, and in every generation she enters into holy souls. She makes them friends of God and prophets, friends of God and prophets. For God loves nothing more than he who lives with wisdom, for she is more beautiful than the sun, and above every constellation of stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be better. For after this comes night, but vice will not prevail against wisdom. He wants you. Even though he's contained in himself, he's content in himself, he wants you. He really wants you and he wants your joy. He wants not your bitterness. We love him because he first loved us. Who could resist somebody who comes to them and showers them with real love, not fake love, real love? How many of you would be angry or not at least amenable on a human level to somebody who comes and says I just think you're beautiful and they mean it I actually love you for who you are I want to give you everything I want to fix any problem that you have and I can I want to give you the world in fact I did give you the world this is the one who loves us. finally, why, why should you be faithful to him specifically? Because his throne, as we said in the Psalm of the 11th hour of the morning, his throne is his death. He reigns through sacrifice. Instead of Elevating himself as an object of taking, he erected himself on the cross and was fastened to it, sacrificing himself in the most ultimate way by emptying himself of his greatness, of his glory, of his position, of his status, of the insults, of all the unfaithfulness, of all of the entitlement, of all the things we spoke about. And he answers it, by saying, I won't rule you with a rod. I won't chastise you with a whip. I won't divorce you. My throne is my death. My throne is my blood. I have poured out my love for you because I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Glory be to our God forever and ever into the age of ages. Amen.